Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. In our culture today, most of the time it seems when we are reading the Bible, uh, we're doing so by ourselves and usually for uh, a short period of time, maybe reading one passage, one paragraph or something like that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We'll talk about that more uh, towards the end of the sermon this morning. But I think because that is the main way that we tend to encounter the Word of God in our world today, what that can mean for us is that we can get this assumption in our heads that that's how it's always been. And we can forget as we read a letter, especially a letter of the New Testament like the book of Romans, that this letter was written to be read within a community. When Paul wrote the book of Romans that we've been walking through for the past few weeks, he did not write a bunch of individual copies and mail it to each member of the churches in Rome for them to read during their morning quiet time. What would have happened would probably would have been something a little more like you would have shown up for church on a Sunday morning and when you arrived you would have heard that, hey, our church has received a letter from the Apostle Paul and during worship on that morning you would have heard someone read that letter to your congregation, maybe explain some of the confusing parts, which there are one or two in the book of Romans. And that would have been how you would have encountered this letter. And I say all of that because when we have that mindset in our minds as we read this letter, we'll begin to notice that Paul is not just writing a letter, but he's he's giving us one side of a conversation. Uh, Paul is presenting truth, and then maybe uh, considering how someone might receive that truth, and then responding to how they might respond to what he said, factoring that into the progression of the argument that he's making throughout this letter. So if you're an average person, if you can imagine sitting in a church in Rome in the first century hearing this letter read, my guess is that as you were hearing uh, the end of Romans chapter 5 being read, there might be a chance that you would start to think that Jesus has accomplished everything for us and there is nothing left for us to do. Over the course of this series we've been in since the new year called Salvation Spaces, we've been looking at passages from the book of Romans that help us understand the words that Paul gives us to get our arms around the life we have in Christ. We've looked at the story of the gospel, about how our king, Jesus, became a servant so that we could join his royal family. We, we talked about propitiation, how Jesus died to deal with our problem of sin. We talked about justification, about how Jesus makes us right with God. We talked about reconciliation, about how because of Jesus there is now peace between us and God. We talked about regeneration, about how we deserved death, and yet Jesus brought us new life. And those are all things that are absolutely true, and we should reflect on them often. But you may have noticed, even as I was just summarizing the series up to this point, that there is an emphasis in all of those words of Jesus doing something for us that brings us into relationship with God. You may remember that towards the end of the passage that Fred walked us through last week in Romans 5, 20, the text says that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's an astounding statement. God has done all of this for us in Christ. He has healed us. 
He's made us right with him. He's drawn us near, and that does not end. His grace is always greater than our sin. And so, if you might imagine, if you can go back to picturing that you're in Rome in the first century, that you hear a statement like that read, and you might think to yourself, boy, that is amazing. Grace is astounding. They wouldn't have said grace is amazing because amazing grace hadn't been written yet. That's a different point. But they might be thinking, grace is so powerful that I, I must be in the clear. I can do whatever I want for the rest of my life and everything is fine. I can run up the tab of sin as high as I want and grace will always pay the bill. And yet Paul can see that line of thinking and he gets out ahead of it with the rest of the story. The beginning of the passage we're going to walk through today, he asks this question in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If you can't tell already, the answer Paul is going to give to that question is no. If we've been set free from a life that ended in death, God's desire for us is not that we would continue to dabble in the things that bring death about. Instead, his desire for us is that we would grow in sanctification or holiness, as some translations put it. And that might make us pause because sanctification might sound like a big technical word that doesn't really make sense and holiness might give us the mental image of someone looking down their nose at someone else that they think they're better than. And the point with all of this is not that we would learn some fancy vocabulary or that we would puff our egos up a little bit, but the point of all of this is that we would respond properly to what Christ has done for us because the story of Jesus does not end with him dying on the cross. The story ends with him rising from the dead three days later. And because that is the story of Jesus, and because we are invited to participate in that story, that means that the story for us does not end with being covered by the blood of Christ so that our sins are taken care of and then we can go do whatever we want. That The story ends with us raising to new life with Jesus. That's the point Paul wants us to get in Romans 6 this morning. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, Christ's death is our death so that his life can be our life. That is what it means to grow in sanctification as we follow Jesus. Let's keep reading and see how Paul fleshes his answer to that question out a little more. In verse 2, in response to that question, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Sin and grace do not mix because they are from two different realms of existence. As Fred showed us last week, we were living in the realm of sin and death. We had chosen to live there. There was nothing we were ever going to be able to do to get ourselves out of that residence. Sin and death were tyrants holding us prisoner, and yet Christ died to set us free. His death on the cross was for us. And when we take that death on ourselves, we identify with him in his death so that we might be freed from the realm of sin and death and into the realm of grace and life. So the logic that maybe I can just sin as much as I want and grace will always pay the bill breaks down because this is not a matter of how do I keep my tab paid off. It is a matter of where do I take up residence? We did live in the realm of sin and death, but because of Christ, we don't live there any longer. So it makes no sense to try to go back to living there or bringing the things from that realm into the one that we live in now. 
My guess is that if you were the kind of person that takes the time to read the obituaries in the paper, uh, my guess is that after you finish reading through the names listed in the obituary section in a given week, uh, you don't then go outside expecting to find someone whose name you just read in the obituary section out for a jog. Like if someone's name's been written in the obituary section, they don't live here anymore, if I can put it that way, <laughs> put it that mildly. And Paul is saying something similar about our life in Christ here in Romans 6. If we have said yes to following Jesus, our obituary's been posted in the paper in the realm of sin and death. We've died to sin. So it makes no sense to go back to death when we've brought it, been brought into life. There was a biologist who specialized in the study of ants named E.O. Wilson, and when he was doing his research, it was known already that ants produce uh, these chemicals, these pheromones, these sort of scents that they give off to communicate messages with other ants. Don't ask me any more questions about all the science behind it, because that's as much research as I've done into it. But he knew that much, and he wanted to see what would happen if the, the since the pheromones given off didn't match with reality. And he knew that one of the pheromones that ants would give off was one that communicated to the ants around it that it was dying and needed to be drug outside of the colony and thrown on the trash heap. So he took an ant that was perfectly healthy, no, in the prime of its life, and he put this pheromone that communicates that I am dying on it just to see what would happen. And almost immediately, as soon as another ant came into contact with that ant giving off the scent of death, it was picked up, it was dragged outside, it was thrown on the trash heap. But, of course, this ant was not dying, it was not near death at all, it doesn't know what's just happened. So it scrambles up, gets, gets back up, and comes back in the colony, and almost immediately, again, as it comes into contact with another ant, that ant picks it up, drags it outside, throws it on the trash heap, and the cycle repeated over and over again for a couple hours until that scent of death wore off. Uh, the, the, the scent, the pheromone that ant was giving off did not match where it was desiring to live, which I think is similar to the point Paul is trying to get at here. If you have said yes to following Jesus, you have the scent of life, if I can put it that way. And so it makes no sense to try to fit into a world of death. So it does not mean that once you say yes to following Jesus, you're never allowed to sin again, and every time you do, you're in big trouble or something like that. Paul is not asking us to keep a tally to always make sure that we've done more good than bad in the world. He's asking us where our residence lies. He's asking us what sort of scent are we giving off, because if we have moved into life with Christ, that truth underscores every other part of our existence. If we've been raised to new life, we don't live in death any longer, nor should we want to. And we see that acted out, we see that remembered when we look at baptism, which Paul begins, continues to talk about in the next few verses. He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Identifying with Christ frees us from sin, and that identification is made most clear at the waters of baptism. When Jesus died, he went into the tomb and came back out three days later into new life. And based on that, from the beginning of the church, followers of Jesus have been baptized, going down into the water, demonstrating their death to the life that they have known before, their death to life apart from Christ, and being raised into new resurrected life. It's a visible act that demonstrates that this person is entering into resurrected life with Jesus. It is a physical statement that we have crossed from death to life. If we've passed through those waters, it makes no sense to want to go back to any life we've known before because we haven't just taken a bath. We've tied and we've risen again. And because of passages like this, this church and the movement of churches that we're a part of puts an emphasis on baptism being done by immersion and being done, uh, or excuse me, and the person being baptized making that decision for themselves. And I understand that that can be a loaded issue, and I understand that I'm not going to be able to say everything that could be said about it this morning. But I do want to take a moment to just speak to that issue directly because it's here in this passage. I'm not here this morning to say everyone that disagrees with me is a horrible person, but I would say is that when you read through the New Testament and when you read through the first few centuries of the history of the church, you will find that the norm is that when someone commits to following Jesus for themselves, they demonstrate that commitment by being baptized by immersion. And there are exceptions to that rule, sure, but that is what we see happening an overwhelming majority of the time. And because that's what we find as the example in the New Testament and in the early church, uh, the, our movement of churches has followed that example because of our commitment to want to do what we find in the New Testament to the best of our abilities. Uh, when we say yes to following Jesus, there's value for ourselves and for those around us in demonstrating that commitment through that physical act of going down into the waters of baptism, demonstrating our death to the life we had known before, and being raised to new life in Christ in obedience to what he has told us to do. And I fully understand in saying that, that there are plenty of people who've come from different church backgrounds, and if that's you right now, I hope you hear my heart. Because I'm not saying any of this to try to scare you off. I'm not saying any of this to try to get you to wonder if you or your loved ones have committed some grave mistake. That's not my point at all. But I would say that as we follow Jesus, as this church follows Jesus as a community, my hope for each of us is that we would always desire to take the next steps in our walk with God and be faithful to what he's called us to do. So if you're listening to me right now, reading a passage like this and wondering, do I have to be immersed? I would suggest to you, you might be asking the wrong question. It would be a little bit like if the night Whitney and I got engaged, I asked her if we had to have a wedding. That question maybe entered our minds once or twice, but in that moment, it's the wrong question. It's not a question of what do I have to do, what's the bare minimum that I have to do to stay in good standing with God. It is a question of how do I respond properly to all that Christ my King has done for me. So I'm not twisting anyone's arm, I'm not asking anyone to make a decision right this moment, but I would ask you to consider what Scripture has to say 
and consider what God is doing in your life and respond as is appropriate. As always, with everything that's said up here, this is a conversation. I'm not just lecturing you. And I'd be glad to continue it with you. So would the, so many others, the leaders of this church. Because I'm not up here to beat you over the head with my opinions. I'm up here so that we all might walk alongside one another as we follow Jesus. And when we do that, it leads to a transformed life as we remember what Christ has done for us and how we have said yes to following him. And so baptism is not, uh, I'm not suggesting that it's a silver bullet that you'll never have difficulties ever again once you come up out of those waters, but I would say it is a demonstration of our faith in what Christ has done and our desire to participate in that life with him. When life is hard, if you said yes to following Jesus, there are all sorts of ways you might respond, but one way that is worth responding is to remember your baptism. That means in my own life, when life is hard, when there is sin, when there's temptation, when there's depression, despair, anxiety, whatever it might be, there are all sorts of good and proper ways that I could respond in that moment. But one of the ways that I probably should respond is to remember that on March 23rd, 2003, at the First Christian Church of Iberia, Missouri, Monty French went down into the waters of baptism and was raised to new life in Christ. And that doesn't mean that all the problems of life go away in that moment, but it means that whatever is going on right in front of me, it's viewed through the lens of the fact that Christ died and, raised from, and rose from the dead and has invited me in to be a part of that. And that changes how we look at whatever is right in front of us in that moment. If we've said yes to following Jesus, the fact that he is alive is greater than anything else we will ever face in this life. His death is our death so that his life can be our life. And that fact can transform us as we step into resurrected life with him. Paul continues in verses 8 to 14 to flesh out a little more what that looks like. He says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. Christ's death is our death, so that his life is our life. Sin and death have been defeated in Christ, and he invites us to participate in that life here and now. We're able to count ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ because of what Jesus has done. Paul does not say here to count yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ if you feel like it. He doesn't say count yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ if things have been going well for the last week. He says Jesus has died and resurrected, and that is how we can count ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. And that transforms everything about us right here and right now as we walk in the life he has set out for us, a life that puts off evil, puts off wickedness, puts off the things that are from the realm of death so that we can take on the life God desires for us in Christ. But as we say that, it's important we don't swing too far in the wrong direction. We started today by asking the, the question if 
all that Jesus has done means there's nothing for us to do. And we said, that's, no, that's not true, but we don't want to swing too far in the opposite direction and say that that means there's everything for us to do now. When Paul says to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, he is calling us to live in light of what is true. He's not calling us to earn our standing with God, but to live in line with the life Christ desires for us. It's not a matter of living in a certain way to keep your residence in the land of life and grace. It's refusing to live in the land, live in line with the land of sin and death, because it is no longer our home. So to try to show what that looks like, we're going to try something. I think it's going to work. David and Evie are going to help me with a sermon illustration real quick. And I've got some props hidden back behind the piano here that, that David's going to go get the first one to help us try to get our arms around this. I told them where they were hidden, and now they, okay. All right. David's got a balloon for us, and he told me he would be really good at keeping it up in the air. Well, hold on, Evie, your part's not ready yet. (laughs) But David told me he could keep this balloon up in the air for a long time. I'm a little nervous that he's that close to the piano, but it'll be okay. But I wonder if... (laughs) I wonder if sometimes we think of following Jesus, we think of sanctification... Like it's keeping this balloon in the air. Like sure, it's not that difficult. I mean, we could stand up here and do it all day if we really had to. We could flip our hair in between times when it's up in the air if we really wanted to. We're feeling ambitious. But at the end of the day, it's all up to us. At the end of the day, the balloon's not contributing a whole lot. The balloon's got to stay in the air. But it's all up to me to do that. David, keep doing that. Because you're probably thinking right now that there's another way to keep a balloon in the air that's far simpler. And Evie's going to show us what that is now. It's a lot easier to keep a balloon in the air if it's just full of helium. Because now Evelyn, Evie doesn't have to do anything to keep that balloon floating in the air. And if we have died with Christ, we have been raised to new life with him. When Paul says in verses 8 and 9 of this passage, that Christ is alive and he will never die again. He is free from the cycle of life and death. And so is also, so if we have said yes to following Jesus, you're making me nervous back here. If you have said yes to following Jesus, you have been broken free from that cycle of sin and death. Life is no longer about us keeping the balloon up in the air. Christ has given us new life, and so we live in light of that truth. It's not up to us to keep the balloon in the air. It's us to hold on to the balloon that we've been given so that we might step into the life God desires for us, so that we can be fully alive as God's created us to be, leaving the land of sin and death for the land of life and grace. Thank you guys for your help. You you can go give them a hand for all their help. And when we do that, we find the life that God has in store for us. And we find that it's far better than the life of trying to keep the balloon in the air on our own. I moved into Whitney and I's house about six weeks before our wedding. And when I did, a friend of mine said, oh, you've got six weeks. You can make that house the most epic bachelor pad that you've ever seen. And I didn't do that for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that I, would do, that I didn't do that 
is because when I look around that house, it would make absolutely no sense for me to want to do that. Because if I'm being honest, Whitney's way of existing in the world is far better than mine is. You all know that if you've spent any time around both Whitney and I, that Whitney's a far kinder person than I am. And so over the last few months, we've made a lot of trips to dumpsters. We've made a lot of trips to Goodwill to get rid of things that used to be mine. <laughs> and every time we've done that, she, because she is such a kind person, she will say something to the effect of, are you okay with this? Are you going to have your feelings hurt if we throw this stuff away? And my response every time has been, why would I want my junk when you have nice stuff? Why would I want my junk when we've got all these wedding gifts that we don't know what to do with or where to put them? I mean, the stuff I had, if I'm being honest, it was junk. It was functional junk, but it was junk. All the stuff I had as far as, you know, like towels and silverware and all those things, they were either things I stole from my parents or my grandparents, or they were things that roommates of mine had left with me when they moved out because they were getting married and they didn't want it anymore. And when I compared that to life, to married life, sure, it's a life that's different. But it's a life that's far better. And sure, there are times where it's strange and it's different and I'm not used to it. I couldn't tell you the last time I drank out of a plastic cup, for example. But I'm not longing to go back to drinking out of a plastic cup. It's a life that's different. But it's a life that's better. And when Christ calls us to die to ourselves and to follow him, inviting us into a life that's different but he's inviting us into a life that's far better. He's inviting us into a life that maybe seems strange at times, that maybe doesn't make sense, that goes against what we have known in this life or how we have lived, but it is a life that is in line with how our creator designed us to live. It's the life Jesus calls us into. Paul gives us that call in the last few verses of this chapter. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we say yes to following Jesus, we are purified, sanctified, set apart, made holy. The elements in the Old Testament that were used for worship of God in the temple. And those elements used for sacrifices, for worship in the temple, they were not made holy because they were to never be used. They were set apart, they were sanctified so that they could be used for a specific purpose, in a specific way, in order to bring glory to God. And that is what Paul is calling us to as we respond to the life we have in Christ. If you have said yes to following Jesus, you have been made holy. Not because you're being called to separate yourself out from the rest of the world and look down on it in superiority, but so that you can live in the world as a part of God's people, bringing his life and grace into a world full of sin and death. That is what it means to be made holy, to be sanctified, to die with Christ, so that you can be raised to new life with him. 
And I understand at this point it might be helpful to hand you a to-do list of here's 10 ways to vacation this week. And I'm not sure I could put together such a list, and even if I could, I'm not sure it would be helpful for everyone. But I want to try to close with just a couple thoughts that should help us maybe be pointed in the right direction. A couple of years ago, I was invited to come speak to a group of pastors in in the Rochester area to mainly introduce myself, tell the story of how I ended up here, and things like that. And uh, I don't remember most of what I said that day. That probably means it wasn't very good. Uh, But I remember that one of the last questions I was asked to answer was, what are you passionate about? Why are you in ministry? Something to that effect. And my response to that question was essentially, I just want to help people pray and read their Bible. And if I can be honest, if I can just put all my cards on the table, everything I do as an employee of this church is hopefully pointed to that end of helping you learn how to pray and read your Bible and to do it alongside others who are doing the same thing. I fully understand that there is so much more to following Jesus than just praying and reading your Bible, but you know what? There's not less to it than that. So if you're listening to me right now and wondering what to do in response to all of this and sanctification, I would suggest it starts there. And just in case you're hearing me say that and thinking, gee, thanks, Pastor, but I'm pretty sure I could have figured that one out on my own, I would ask you to consider if you've really thought about all that that means. There was a study done a few years ago by the Center for Bible Engagement. You can look it up online if you're interested. And they surveyed 40,000 people between the ages of 8 and 80. And they asked them a series of questions uh, related to how often they read the Bible and then off of that what their behaviors were. And what they found was that for people that said they read the Bible at least four times a week, they were far less likely to feel lonely far less likely to be angry, less likely to be bitter, less likely to be an alcoholic, less likely to be having sex outside of marriage, less likely to be feeling spiritually stagnant, less likely to be viewing pornography, and far more likely to be sharing with Jesus with others and discipling others to follow Jesus. I'm not standing up here and saying, all you got to do to follow Jesus is read your Bible four times a week. But I don't think it's a bad place to start. Do, Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want those around you to know Jesus? Do you want your kids and your grandkids to know Jesus? Do you want your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers to know Jesus? If you do, and I hope you do, I can't hand you a tailor-made solution, but I can tell you that it starts with seeking the heart of God. And we do that by reading his word and through prayer. It starts with asking God every day to show you how he is calling you to live where you are right now, and seeking to know him through how he has revealed himself to us in the Bible. If you need more than that, if you need more conversation or resources about how to do that, that's what I'm I'm up here for at the end of the service. That's what I'm out at the Welcome Center for as you were were leaving to have those conversations. That's what we have resources like the Marion Road for to help you grow in sanctification as you follow Jesus. But wherever you are this morning, if you hear nothing else I have to say, I hope you can hear this, that Christ has died the death you deserved. So step into the life he desires for you. Let's watch this video. God, we thank you that you have called us 
invited us into life with you. God, forgive us for when we settle for the land of sin and death, life as we have known it before we knew you. Draw us near, draw us into life with you, God. We trust that you are present among us right now, and so we ask that you would give us uh, clarity of thought, wisdom, as individuals and as a community, to know what it looks like to follow you where we are right now, to be formed more into your image, and to grow into all that you desire for us to be. We call us in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.